Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. My name is Matt. I'm eight years old. My favorite color is blue. Hi, I am Nora. I am six years old. And my favorite food is cake. I know those voices pretty well. They're Max and Nora, the son and daughter of one of our senior health producers, Nadia Kunang. Can I say something? We wanted to hear a kid's perspective on the pandemic. Uh, I think it was awful. Some business actually closed down. Some restaurants closed down they like. So I feel like it was awful. As for Max, he told us he's ready for life to get back to normal, so we asked him what he was most excited about. Meeting my friends that I met in school. That I don't get to play with like every day. It's not just Max and Nora. The pandemic has upended family life in ways that were simply unimaginable 18 months ago. Parents are juggling remote work and homeschooling and essential workers have worried about bringing the virus home to their families every night. Others lost their jobs. They're now struggling to make ends meet. But no matter what situation you're in, we've definitely all had some pretty tough days. And now that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, I think it's important to think about what we learned over the last very stressful year. What we learned about our kids, about ourselves, about the parents we want to be going forward as we start chasing life. No one can prepare you to raise a child during a pandemic. Think about it. There's no playbook for this sort of thing. We asked you to share your stories of parenting this past year and a half, and you had a lot to say. These were some powerful responses. The day I gave birth, my husband was the only person allowed with me. The first time I held my son, I was wearing a mask. I had, you know, a six-year-old. He is a kiddo who loved school. But when everything kind of happened with this pandemic and uh, we went to Zoom, he did not like it. There was lots of tears shed by both of us. He just is not a computer guy. My husband and I are raising a middle school boy and a toddler girl, and we're doing so without any family or close friends for hundreds of miles. It's been incredibly challenging because we're Black, And the degree of hate our community has experienced over the past 18 months has been heartbreaking. I'm a single parent and I have four children. So I was totally dependent on my neighbors so I could go to work every day and just keep my roof over our heads and keep my job. And the people that I barely had any contact with suddenly became my lifeline. I have a son and a daughter. I'm high risk, I have some medical conditions. And it's the first time in my life I've really felt guilty about having the medical problems I do. My kids are still in isolation when their friends are not, and they don't live normal lives. But we're doing our best to 
get through this situation until it really is safe for all of us to come out. As a parent myself, I've seen firsthand how hard it is to maintain normalcy for my kids. Every minute that I wasn't working, I was thinking about them, trying to figure out how this might all affect them. I talked to my wife, Rebecca, about this recently and really tried to get at what were we looking forward to the most in the coming months for our family. And what I would really, really wish is that we could just have a really big party for our kids and our family and all our friends and all their friends and just feel safe doing that, you know? What about for the girls? What do you want for them when they're either vaccinated and the restrictions? I want them to have, like, those dances. You know, Sage has never been to a dance. And neither Sky, even though their activities now are, like, in the football field. Like, hey, we're having a, you know, middle school social event in the football field, and everybody still stands six feet away, and we're going to hit you with the pool noodle if you get closer, <laughs> you know? I mean, I wow. feel they're still so strict there, but... I do want them to have those social activities and in environments where they're safe, but they don't have to have us, you know, around where they can, you know, kind of explore and be who they want to be. The pandemic has had a big impact on the emotional lives of kids, probably in particular those who've been stuck at home and haven't been able to interact in person with their friends and their peers and their teachers. We have to recognize that kids have lost things they cannot recover. That's Lisa Demore, a clinical psychologist and host of the podcast Ask Lisa, the Psychology of Parenting. You might remember her from our first episode of Chasing Life. We have to be really empathic with kids and teenagers about the fact that there are things that got X'd out of their experience that cannot and will not ever happen. So they as a group, need an extra measure of empathy, in my mind. You know, grown-ups can make stuff up. Kids cannot make a lot of these things up. So part of helping them process and move forward is not to rush past the reality that they have irrecoverable losses. The goal in this, and this is maybe what we could really push towards as we re-script our lives, know your kid. And just because other kids can do certain things at a certain pace, that may not be your kid. And you want to respect who your kid is and the kind of recovery they really need. As a parent, it's really hard to see my kids struggling. You want to do everything you can to help support and protect them. But these challenges, again, have really been unprecedented. There is no playbook for how to handle things here. And there's so much pressure on parents right now trying to juggle work and childcare and all the other complications of pandemic life. But does it really have to be that way? Somehow we've taught people that parents should be entirely, not primarily, but entirely responsible for their children alone. No one can take care of a child alone. It's just simply too much. Robin Nelson is an anthropologist from Santa Clara University in California. She's also a mother of two. Robin researches family systems and how we as individuals and communities care for our kids. It's what anthropologists call alloparenting. If you break down the term alloparenting, literally means other parents. And we're typically thinking of any care that's being done for a child that is not done by the mother and could be emotional investment, carrying, feeding, any care at all. You know, basically, this is the scientific name for the common idea that it takes a village to raise a child. Humans 
cannot take care of our children alone. We can't. We give birth to extremely immature infants. And so if you compare us to kind of other animals, like say a horse, they give birth and in a few minutes later, it's up and running around, right? And humans are incredibly fragile. They are social learners for a very long period of time. And for that reason, we help each other take care of our children. And we don't always see that played out in the most effective ways with regards to social and public policy, but that is how we are evolved to take care of our babies. In fact, this has been the norm for us, historically and across cultures. It's part of what it means to be human. But more recently, the pressures and the pace of modern life have changed our family structure, especially in places like the United States. Many of us have moved away from our hometowns and no longer live near extended family. In America, we adapted to this idea of the, quote, nuclear family, where two parents and their kid live in a household together. But then disaster struck with the COVID-19 pandemic, and those smaller family units struggled to keep up with the mounting challenges. Here again is anthropologist Robin Nelson. Then the pandemic hit, and all of a sudden, I am myself a mother with two children. And I am thinking about my work from this theoretical perspective, but also from a lived experience. And I'm watching everyone around me, myself included, all of our social networks fall apart. Because the main thing that we had to do during the pandemic was isolate from one another. And that is one thing that we know makes it very difficult to take care of kids effectively. Suddenly, Robin's life reflected her research. And so I'm just, you know, sitting here in March of 2020, and the schools are all closing, and the university where I work is shutting down, and my kids are going to be underfoot, and yet I'm still supposed to be teaching full-time. And I'm wondering, and I'm, I'm looking at friends, and I'm thinking, wow, we don't do this very well. We have no system in place to do this very well. How are we actually going to get this done? And I think one of the most surprising things that, about the pandemic, and perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised, but... One of the unfortunate realizations was that we had no safety net for this situation. Maybe we hadn't heard the word alloparenting before, but this pandemic has made clear that we do rely on larger communities to help us raise our kids. Whether that is school teachers or grandparents or babysitters or even other parents hosting play dates. Going it solo, so to speak, this past year has caused a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety, to say the least. Some parents are worried about the developmental effects their kids may experience after being isolated for months and the potential learning loss from not being inside the classroom as much. That's not to mention losing interest in learning altogether. But while juggling all of these concerns about our kids, we also can't lose sight of our self-care. Which I know is a struggle for a lot of parents to even just hear that. Like, when am I supposed to fit that in amidst everything else I'm trying to do? through this pandemic parenting, but how important it is for your mental health to be attended to, because that actually really directly influences your kids' mental health. Amanda Zelahusky is a clinical psychologist at Valparaiso University in Indiana. She's also a mom of three boys. She knows firsthand what it's like to raise a family during the pandemic, and she admits it's been difficult. That's why she co-founded Pandemic Parenting, this is a free online research and resource hub for parents. So my colleague and co-founder, Dr. Lindsay Malloy, and I both had done research studies looking at how is COVID-19 going to impact parents' mental health and children's mental health. 
And we were both sitting on data that could be helpful to people right now. So we started with a few webinars and ended up launching this whole nonprofit organization called Pandemic Parenting. As much as we'd love to, parents don't have time right now to read your brilliant 300-page book about whatever this issue is. Like, I'm Googling these issues in the middle of the night, and I need to know what to do right now. And so we're bringing folks in and doing, you know, one to two minute quick videos, podcast conversations to stay out in front of what the questions are um, as we're all trying to navigate this together. What were the big demands from your readers early on when they were coming to the website? What was it that they were really trying to learn about? I think a lot of it was how to make these decisions. That's where parents were just, were really struggling is, you know, what do we do? So a lot of questions about how to make decisions for kids. Um, what is safe? What isn't, you know, where do I find credible information about that? Cause people were sort of inundated and not sure how to weed through, um, a lot of what was out there, help with talking to kids about these difficult things, uh, understanding, you know, is the pandemic traumatizing my child? It's a lot of those messages for parents and feeling like they had a community to come to, which is what we really tried hard to kind of build, that you're not alone in this and all of us are struggling, um, even those of us who study this stuff and do this stuff for a living. You know, I, I imagine typically when you're providing guidance, you know, in your area of expertise, you're, you're saying based on 10 years of data or 20 years yeah. of data, and here you didn't have 10 weeks worth of data. How did you translate it into something useful, given how early we were, certainly, in all of this? We have been through other global collective traumas before. Post 9-11, we, we talked with some colleagues um, who studied how parents talk to kids after the Boston Marathon bombing. We know a lot about how kids respond to traumatic situations or crises and what they need. So it was kind of the combination of what we already know. Plus, let's look at, you know, for example, in our studies, what are the specific ways kids are being impacted? What are the specific, you know, groups of parents struggling more than others? And what do they need? More of my conversation with Amanda after this break. And now back to Chasing Life and my conversation with clinical psychologist Amanda Zella-Husky. When I was um, surfing your site, a couple things really jumped out at me, just in my own conversations with my kids. I think I'm the guy who's supposed to have the answers a lot of times. And I found myself honestly saying, I don't know more in this past year than I think I probably ever have to my kids in their lives before this. I don't know. Can we go to this thing, whatever activity? I, I don't know. My kids would start quoting research back to me, but masks <laughs> prevent transmission X amount, you know, and all, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, I think that is amazing for them to hear you say, I don't know. That's such a beautiful developmental process and so important for them to hear and learn, like, it's okay that my parents don't have all the answers. And actually what was being taught to your kids and the skills they were developing and being able to advocate for themselves, but also to hear that grownups don't have all the answers. And there's ways we can collaborate together um, to figure out what's best for our family at this moment. So I just love that. I got to tell you, those were some of maybe the most authentic yes. conversations I think we've had, you know, and, and it's interesting. Um, it was hard for me at times. I remember getting a little like emotional because mm -hmm. um, they're like, hey, you're talking about this, you're a reporter, you know, if you don't know, exactly, then who's going to know? Yep. I do think that is really important for our kids to see how we then go make decisions or find information. 
Um, but I, I think it's also okay for them to see that there aren't answers right now, as long as we remember what kids, teenagers, young adults need, which is to, to feel safe and secure and know, I may not have the answer right now, but I'm going to do my best to go figure it out, or we're going to figure it out together, or, you know, we're going to make sure that you're safe, okay, and do our best to do that. That's ultimately what's underneath a lot of those questions. So again, the more we can empower and collaborate with our kids, have them be a part of that process, the more they understand, and it isn't just one of those, well, because I said so, right, which doesn't help kids actually form their own rational decision-making process as they get older. Again, I have three daughters, teen and tween daughters. They typically spend a lot of time with their friends, and they didn't get to do that, obviously, as much during pandemic. How do you think that affects their development in terms of figuring out their own identity? Being immersed in humanity, is that a critical ingredient for figuring out your identity, or is this sense of self, can it, you know, actually be nurtured during a period like this as well? There is this development of identity anyway during the teen and tween years, you know, you're sort of talking about, we're trying on all these different identities and figuring out, you know, what's the right fit. Um, and I think that we all have very different ways of, of showing affection and exploring our world. You know, whether you have maybe very extroverted or very introverted kids or, you know, what they're trying to figure out about their comfort level socially They've learned a lot about themselves and what they need, which I think is going to help them advocate in the future in things like, you know, their college or university environment or the workplace. So for some kids, we found that, you know, if they're quieter, shyer kids, they actually haven't minded things like remote learning or not being put in some of those really socially complex situations like who am I going to sit with in the cafeteria or navigating a lot of those very socially complex environments, they felt some relief about having control over, you know, which situations they put themselves in. For other kids, you know, maybe on the other extreme, um, they've hated that. But what I think is going to be so interesting as we come out of this is, like you said, how much they have learned about their identities and what they need. So I think, you know, the message there, again, for parents is just, you know, learning along with your child around, well, yeah, what did you like about that? Or, or what was hard about that? Or if you could keep parts of this, even as we ease back into the world, what would that look like? I, I feel like maybe you were at our house for part of this <laughs> pandemic, because you, I mean, you've described a lot of that perfectly. And I found it broke down a little bit by age in our house as well. Do you sort of at a macro level look at this as childhood interrupted? Or are there potential benefits or strengths or things that might come about in our children that could be positive as a result of something? I mean, this has been an awful event. There's nothing good about this pandemic, right? I guess I'm always trying to look for, for silver linings because it's my nature. But you know, uh, people have said to me that our kids could be more resilient as a result of this. Um, is that a fair way of representing this, do you think? This has been really, really hard on people. And it is so important to sort of honor the grief, the loss, but also the growth in this. Resilient children are made, not born. And so I think that's important for people to remember that they're getting to see how you're navigating these things. And it's also modeling and teaching them how to build and strengthen those muscles too. So yeah, I, I think there will be some things that come out of this. I think it's given families opportunity to sort of reset, you know, evaluate things like, wow, we were really busy before this. Um, I kind of liked having nothing to do on the weekends for a period of time. That was amazing. And it's a great opportunity, you know, to say, okay, 
maybe we change the way we ease back into the world and we're more intentional about it. It is undoubtedly too early for us to really know the full effects this pandemic is going to have on our kids. But psychologist Lisa DeMoor gave me something to be hopeful about. I trust that most kids are resilient. Most kids are going to figure it out. Most kids are going to get themselves back on track developmentally. What I would watch for, though, as a parent, is a kid who becomes highly avoidant of things they used to do, like go to school or see friends or show up at dances or sports or whatever. Avoidance is very common in anxiety. If something makes us anxious, avoiding feels great. Avoidance actually entrenches anxiety. So how can parents support their kids in overcoming this anxiety? The way we push against it is to normalize their anxiety. See, yep, I get it that you're anxious. You haven't seen these people for a while. And then to help them wade in. So they do not have to, like, go to a huge dance is the first thing they do. That would be overwhelming. Actually, I think for anybody at this point. But they should get together with a friend. Or they should swing by the park and see a few people. They need to actually confront the thing they fear. And usually in confronting it, their fears go way down and they are increasingly ready to engage again. I'm also encouraged by what I know about the brain and its amazing capacity to adapt. We call this neuroplasticity. You probably know this term. It's the ability of experiences, especially if they are repeated over time, to then form new connections between brain cells and actually sort of change the brain's circuitry. The ability to do this is greatest in childhood and adolescence, but you can do it your whole life. And while this pandemic, like other traumatic events, may have forged new pathways in the brain that are unwanted or unwelcome, we can also harness the same neuroplasticity to help kids come out of this pandemic more resilient and with better coping skills. The hope, of course, is that kids will bounce back on their own or with a little extra compassion and TLC once life begins to normalize. But some children and some families may require more help. In those cases, it's important to seek out professional help, someone who can address the particular issues your child is facing in the most age-appropriate way. First step, probably talk to your pediatrician who can screen your child and provide a referral. And I'm not the only optimist. Here again is Amanda Zelahusky. I am optimistic, um, in part because, I mean, parents are amazing. We somehow figure it out every day, right? We get up, we try again, you know, we make mistakes, and then we get a do-over and we try again. And we're always doing that with, you know, the best interest of our kids in mind. And so I think we will learn a lot from this. I think we've learned a lot about ourselves and our kids. And I think they'll remember this time differently, maybe, than we as parents remember the sort of stress and relentlessness of it because we have worked so hard to kind of build in aspects of resilience and joy and warmth into our homes. And one more thing before we wrap up today's episode, I want to answer another listener question that I got in the mail. Hi, Dr. Gupta. Our children have not been vaccinated due to their ages. While there are some things that we understand to be too risky right now, like indoor dining, we are unclear about what is safe. Would you be able to help us determine how we can help our children have some more typical summertime experiences without sacrificing their health and welfare? Thank you. That is a great question. So many people have asked some version of this question because we've hit a phase of the pandemic where adults and adolescents can receive the COVID-19 vaccine, but children under 12 cannot. So it's not a surprise then that many parents are confused about what's safe and what is not. Can you travel? Can you send your kids to camp, neighborhood pool? 
First off, let me say there's no one-size-fits-all. That's true for most things in life. But the answer from a medical and public health standpoint are erring on the side of caution. While it's true that cases of COVID-19 in children are dropping and they're less likely than adults to get infected and very sick, there's still tens of thousands of new pediatric cases recorded across the country every week, more than 4 million since the start of the pandemic. And there was this CDC report from early June that found a troubling uptick of cases among adolescents. So with all that in mind, again, fully admitting this is erring on the side of caution, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that children older than two who are not fully vaccinated should still wear a mask when out in public, including at camp when playing with friends and playing indoor sports and outdoor sports with close contact. We know that the virus is far less likely to transmit outdoors versus indoors. So it's really indoor, closely clustered locations that are going to be the most concerning. There are other things you can consider when deciding on this as well. For example, look at your own community or the community you're visiting. How much community spread is there? Do any household members have a medical condition that puts them at higher risk? And finally, keep in mind that state and local regulations do vary, and sometimes greatly, so be aware of the rules where you live or where you choose to visit. Please keep the questions coming. I want you, the listeners, to be a big part of this podcast as well. We have an upcoming episode on fertility. Has the pandemic made you or made people in general reevaluate family size, postpone getting pregnant, or maybe have you struggled with infertility in the midst of all this? If so, we want to hear from you. Please record your thoughts on this as a voice memo and email it to asksanjay at cnn.com. We'd like to include some of them on the next podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. This episode was produced by Rachel Cohn, Jordan Gosperé, Paige Sutherland, Audrey Horwitz, and Grace Walker. Our medical writer is Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. We want to learn more about you. Please tell us a bit about yourself by participating in a brief survey at cnn.com slash listeners. There you can also register for our listener panel, where you'll be one of the first to hear new projects from CNN Audio. Again, that's cnn.com forward slash listeners. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.